0: Good morning, Christ Prez. Our scripture reading today is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and if you'd like, you can go ahead and pause this and read that before listening on. I've shared this before, but remember that parable Soren Kierkegaard once told about some guys who broke into a jewelry store. Instead of stealing anything, they went around switching the price tags on all the items, and as a result, no one who went into the store could see rightly. What was really valuable appeared cheap, and what was cheap appeared to be really valuable. The point of the parable is that something like this has happened with us, that our perception is skewed, that we don't see rightly. We value the wrong things. The parable came to mind as I was wrestling with this passage because the main theme of the passage is the difference between how we tend to see things and how God sees things. It shows us that we have a vision problem And the story wants to work on us by addressing the way we see. It's inviting us to shift our perspective or to use the language of Kierkegaard's parable. It's correcting the price tags. God sees differently than we do. And our passage is inviting us to see how he sees. Let's look at three ways this invitation comes to us in our text. First, where we see beginnings... Excuse me, where we we see endings, God sees beginnings. The history of the monarchy in Israel up to this point has been pretty dismal. The people demanded a king like the nations, and in Saul, remember, they got one. We've seen Saul's impatient disobedience, and we've seen his failure to bring justice. Instead of hearing and heeding the voice of the Lord, Saul is the kind of king who does what he thinks is best, and then he makes excuses When he's called on it. He's the kind of king, as we saw last week, who builds monuments to himself and blames his people for his own failures. And so now Samuel is just sad. He's grieving. You know, he was longing for a true king, one who would really set things right for God's people. But everything has ended up so wrong. As far as Samuel can tell, it's over. Israel's king has failed. It looks like the kingdom has come to an end. What hope is there? See, Samuel can only see an ending. And I wonder, what about you? Where in your life are the places of grief and sadness and hopelessness where you can't see past what has come to an end? Well, listen again to verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. All Samuel could see was Saul's failure. It looked like the end. But where we see endings, God sees beginnings. God says to Samuel, get up, move out. I'm doing something new turns out that God was already at work behind the scenes to bring a new king onto the scene, a better king. A literal translation would have God saying, I have seen for myself a king among his sons. You see, God sees differently than we do. Samuel is watching his world fall apart. Meanwhile, God already sees one who will help get things back on track. As far as Samuel can see, all hope is lost, and at the exact same time, God sees that help is already on the way. All Samuel can see is an ending. God sees a beginning. You know, this is a theme throughout the scriptures. This is one of the great themes of the whole Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebel against God's command, death, we learn, is surely the punishment they will be served, but instead... They're given grace and a promise, the grace of being clothed by God's own hand and a promise that one day, the serpent will be crushed by Adam's descendant. See, despite all the tragedy, they walk forth from Eden with a new beginning. Later, when God's people have to find refuge in Egypt because of famine, they're eventually enslaved there. And it appears that all hope has been lost and, and that the story is over. But God raises up a leader and brings them Out and through a miraculous splitting of the sea, they are baptized into a new beginning they never thought possible. You see, family, this is how the God of the gospel works. Over and over, because of our own sin and failures, because of the sins and failures of others, because of the general brokenness and tragedy of living in a fallen world, our lives are full of so many endings, so many tragic losses, so many sorrows, But the God we worship today is a God of beginnings, a God who always puts a comma at the end of the tragedy, always has a conjunction right after the nightmare, always brings a new beginning just when we think all hope is lost. And so here's the invitation Where are you seeing only endings? Where are your places of grief? Where do you feel hopeless? You know, in Lamentations we read, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. In Isaiah, the Lord says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What is your wilderness? Where is your desert? See, every morning is a new beginning. God promises new grace and mercy for this day. He can make a way in the wildest wilderness. He can cause rivers to spring forth in the driest desert. This is one way that Israel's story can correct our vision. Where we see endings, God sees beginnings. I wonder how might the Spirit be prompting you to shift your perspective on an ending? How can you be alert to the new beginning? Well, here's a second way this story corrects our vision. Where we tend to look at externals, God looks on the heart. He sees inside. Did you know that taller people tend to get paid more than short people? I read this on the internet, so it's probably true. In a recent study, quote, researchers estimate that each additional centimeter of height is associated with a 1.3% increase in annual income. In other words, a person who is 5 feet 6 inches makes 50000 per year would expect to make about 2000 more if they were 5 feet 7 inches and 4000 more if they were 5 feet 8 inches. This estimation assumes other factors associated with earning potential, for instance, gender, age, years of schooling, and location, are all held equal. Close quote. <laughs> That's remarkable. I mean, just think about how much more Tom Cruise and, and Bono would have made over the course of their careers. Had they been six, four, instead of five, six, our tendency to live by sight, to look on the external appearance isn't limited to heightened salaries. You know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we think more about physical appearance than any other group of people in the history of the world. Every day, We're bombarded with images telling us what we should be and what we should look like and what other people should be and look like. And it is impossible, and I do mean impossible, not to be affected by that and to continuously make comparisons of ourselves with others. You know, all of social media is built around this. It thrives on this. And it is corrosive and destructive and warping. It's destructive for women and girls. It's destructive for boys and men. Whether it's the simplest ad on TV or the ubiquitous presence of pornography, we are being constantly discipled and shaped to see ourselves and others according to externals, in a way diametrically opposed to the way God sees. This affects who we choose to date, who we want to be friends with, who we take seriously, who we hire, how we judge someone to be worthwhile, Not only that, but we focus on outward appearances when we just make little decisions about, like, what car to buy, which house to live in, what jobs to take, what restaurants to frequent, maybe which church to attend. Remember, this tendency is also part of Israel's story. When Saul was chosen to be king, we were told that Saul was taller than any of the other people from his shoulders upward. A tall guy, The kind of outward appearance people associate with kingliness. A king like all the other nations. And now it's time to identify the new king from among Jesse's sons. And what happens? Well, listen again to verse 6. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel looks at Eliab. He sees Eliab and he thinks, Ah, clearly this is the king. Why? Why? Because Eliab looks like a king. He's tall in stature. It wasn't hard to picture Eliab wearing the crown. He looks the part. Samuel was only considering what his eyes could see. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There it is god sees differently than we do when he looks at us he sees more than what meets the eye he sees our hearts and that is much more important to him than external appearances when we first met Saul in chapter 9 he'd lost his father's donkeys when we first hear of david before we even learn his name we learn that he's keeping his father's sheep See, that's significant. Already, the story is showing us that here is a better king. He might not be as tall or as physically impressive as Saul, but he's a good shepherd. He's responsible to care for those lowly creatures. See, God looks beyond the external appearance to see that David has character. He's a king who will care for his people. This is another way our passage corrects our vision. Another way God is inviting us to see as he sees. Where are you focusing on externals? See, God cares so much more about your heart. He cares about your character. And so this might mean being more focused on cultivating the fruit of the spirit rather than cultivating a perfect appearance. It might mean focusing more on what really matters with your kids helping them to become people who love God and love others and who are full of love and mercy and justice. It might mean stopping ourselves when we gravitate toward the most beautiful and powerful and strong people in the room. See, man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Let's look at one more way in which God's seeing differs from ours. Whereas we tend to look for greatness at the top, God looks at the bottom. We tend to look for insiders, God looks for outsiders. We look at the first, and God looks at the last. We look high, but God looks low. The way this works in our story is remarkable. Jesse has eight sons, but when he lines them up for consideration by Samuel, he only brings seven. Now remember, seven is a number that signifies fullness and completion. Seven makes a complete lineup of sons. And so um, Samuel probably thinks, ah, seven sons, this is perfect, this is great. One by one, they each pass before Samuel, presumably in an order that corresponds to our ways of seeing. The tallest or oldest or most impressive first, down through the shorter, the younger, the least impressive. Each time a son is ruled out, we can imagine Samuel growing a bit more concerned. It's like back in elementary school when everyone would line up during PE and the team captains choose the players, and of course the most popular, best-looking, most athletic kids get picked first, and then at the end, you're left with the real stinkers, the ones nobody wants on their team. Well, Saul gets to the end of the line, and it turns out that the Lord hasn't chosen any of the seven sons. And so we read this in verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. You see, the eighth son is an outsider. It wasn't even worth bringing him in for consideration. Our translation says that this outsider is the youngest, but the word can just as well mean smallest. Jesse is saying, well, yeah, there is one more, but he is the runt, the least desirable. He's nobody special. He's not kingly material. And so this little child in Bethlehem wasn't invited in. He was kept out with the sheep. But now Samuel says, go get him. And we'll just all be standing here waiting until he arrives. And so Samuel waits and all the brothers wait and we wait. And when the runt arrives, God says, this is the one. See, God doesn't see as we see. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, you remember a busload of people from hell take a little field trip to the outskirts of heaven. The narrator is is one of these visitors, and he has a guide along the way. One by one, uh, he and his guide encounter different spirits who who are coming down from heaven. And at one point, the narrator sees a big, beautiful spirit of a woman who is gorgeous beyond imagination, and she's attended on all sides by girls and boys and, and men and women who are playing music and dancing around her and singing her praises. Her love is flowing out into them and their love is flowing back into her. And it, it says her beauty was unbearable. The, and, and the main character looks at her and then turns to his guide. And here's the exchange. He says, is, is that, is it? He thinks it's someone really important and The guide says, no, not at all. It's someone you'll never have heard of. I thought it was someone very famous. Oh, no, no, no. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived in a little tiny town north of London called Golders Green. But she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Yes, says my guide, she is one of the great ones, but haven't you heard? Fame in this country and fame on earth are two very different things. And see, that's the point. <laughs> fame in this country and fame on earth are two very different things. See, on earth, Sarah Smith of Golden, Golders Green was a nobody. But in God's kingdom, she was one of the great ones. Everybody basked in her love. She'd become one of the greatest hearts of heaven. See, God sees differently than we do. When we we look for greatness, we look high. We look for the people who are the most impressive, the most beautiful, the tallest, the strongest. And when God looks for greatness, he looks low. So, uh, those are three ways this passage invites us to see differently. Where you're tempted to see only endings, look for God's new beginning. Where you're tempted to make evaluations and judgments based on external appearances, consider the deeper questions of character and motivation. When you tend to look for greatness at the top, try looking low instead. God sees differently than we do, and he's inviting us to adopt a different perspective. He's coming into the jewelry store of our lives, and he's fixing the price tags. There's one more thing this passage shows us, and it's this. Um, We resist having our vision healed. I mean, even after we know that God's kingdom turns the world's values upside down, so often we just go on living according to the world's values. We persevere in our hopelessness. We keep keep living by sight rather than by faith. We keep valuing power and privilege ahead of other-oriented, humble love. It's like... God has fixed the price tags, but we just don't trust him. We keep thinking that the old values are the true values. And we actually see this in our passage. Um, how? Well, look again at verse 12. God has already told us do not look on his appearance, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then it's like the narrator just can't help himself. As soon as David walks onto the stage, we immediately get a comment about his physical appearance. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. He might not be tall, but he's really good looking. I don't know. Maybe the Lord does a face palm at this point. You see, old habits die hard for God's people. And so what does God do about this? It really is a problem, even though the way it pops up in our passage is kind of funny. What does God do when his people resist having their vision healed? When they persevere in their wrong perspectives? When they insist on only seeing endings and externals and privileging power and strength? Like, what what does God do when his people just keep acting like a bunch of sheep, You know, in our passage, David becomes the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Arise, anoint him, the Lord said, for this is he. But about a thousand years later, there's another little child born in Bethlehem. He also isn't invited in, and so he has to stay with his mom out with the sheep. And he never stops staying with the sheep which means he never stops staying with the low and the lost and the least and the last. He does this because this is his love for us. It's his love for people whose vision is skewed and who persist in our blindness even when we know better. And so he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are stuck in their endings and can't see a new beginning. He says, Blessed are those who are poor and hungry and excluded. Why? Because Jesus has made his home with them. Because Jesus stays with the sheep. Because Jesus is a good shepherd. He takes care of us even when we resist his taking care of us. And so in Isaiah 53, we read this. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, family, this is our good shepherd. God doesn't just look low, he goes low. He doesn't just see outsiders, he becomes an outsider. And when we put him on a cross, God doesn't just end. Three days later, he begins again. And because he really lives and really sees, one day we will too. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name man